This is the Blind Entrepreneur Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs and business professionals execute their vision by guiding them to profitability. On this episode, we are talking to Tina Wells. She is the CEO and founder of Buzz Marketing Group, which creates marketing strategies for clients within the beauty, entertainment, fashion, financial, and lifestyle sectors. She is an incredibly accomplished entrepreneur, and this is just to name a few of her accomplishments, and that includes Essence's 40 Under 40, Billboard's 30 Under 30, Fast Company's Most, most Creative People in Business, and Inc.'s 30 Under 30. Somebody, most people would call that a pretty successful life, and to Tina, it's only the beginning. Um, I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I do, and I hope you learn about yourself, about marketing, strategies, etc. Uh, so without further ado, everyone, here is today's episode with Tina. Let's go! Hey, Tina, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Anytime, absolutely. So before we get into all the heavy hitting questions about business, entrepreneurship, life, we have to talk about the important stuff and that's food. So imagine you just had the absolute best day of your life. Where are you going to eat and what are you going to order to make your day complete? Um, okay, I'm going to double knot in Philly. Oh, all right. I just went there for the first time, so I was blown away. And I'm probably gonna eat like a few skewers of their meat and their like pickled cucumber. I think that's what I'm gonna do. Nice. I haven't been there yet. I've heard good things, but the fact that that was your choice, I have to go now. <laughs> so good call it's on like that one. And it's good. Like you go in, it's the only place that has like four dollar absent happy hour, but the place looks very New York. And then you go downstairs to this like speakeasy. I don't know. It's like from as a marketer, the experience is pretty amazing and the staff is phenomenal and the food is unbelievable. And I still am thinking about the meal. So that would be the place for me. Nice. Well, if they're listening, uh, maybe they can set up like another interview of us talking over their food. That would be that would be great. Every course we we tackle a new a new conversation. I, I'd be into that. Absolutely. So the first real question. You're a seasoned uh, entrepreneur and professional in the marketing field. Um, there had to have been a time where you felt lost or blind in business. So tell me about a time that you felt lost or blind and how did you overcome that obstacle? Uh, it's a great question. I talk about this with my friends who are business owners and we, we like, we should start our own hashtag, which is the stuff nobody talks about, right? Mm -hmm. Like, have you ever had a problem where you go and try to find solutions and you realize nobody talks about it because it's too embarrassing to talk mm. about. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm going to spend the next phase of my career talking about all the stuff I couldn't find answers to that nobody wanted to talk about. So um, I would say I, I had one, it's, it's, it's recent enough that I can talk about it and far enough that the pain is gone. <laughs> um, okay. But a couple years ago, you know, we ended up in a situation where we were partnering with another agency. We won a really big piece of business. And then after we won it, uh, everything got really interesting. And, and it boiled down to being just bad business and unethical business. And I think um, a lot of times we're taught you work hard, you win, and then good things happen. And we had an experience where we worked hard, we won, and then our worst nightmare happened. And, and so 
Um, I don't think I was really set up to deal with it um, in a spiritual, emotional place or even in a practical business owner place because I just hadn't prepped for it. And so while it was really bad and, and when you, you know how sometimes you take a step back and you're like, I should have seen it coming. I just didn't, you know, how often do we go into a pitch with someone we really trust and that there's, you know, blindsided, you know, by that. And so um, what I ultimately learned was number one, we gave up the business. It was huge. It was life changing business. And so there was first dealing with um, the grief of losing. And I think sometimes as business owners, we don't allow ourselves the space. We just move on to the next thing and don't realize we're taking that into the next thing. And so I think I'm, I was happy that I was old enough to understand what I needed to do. Because I think when I was younger, like people always say, well, what were some big failures? I'm like, I don't know, because I was 19. And I just kept it moving, right? Where in your mid 30s, a failure, you're like, oh, I know how to unpack it. I know how to pick it apart. How to identify the mistakes and how to not make those mistakes again. And so, you know, what I learned was I had the best team ever. They were so supportive and really respected that they were working for someone that was only going to make the ethical decision. And I think that's something you learn in your thirties is when you start to move your own kind of personal dial towards what's ethical and what's acceptable in 10 years from now, you don't know who you are. And so for me, it was really important to say, this is our standard. This is what needs to be done. Um, and then there were the other legal you know, repercussions of making a bad choice. And so I think I was really, um, it was a blind spot for me because I couldn't believe what was happening was actually happening. And I think that now I understand that these things happen. And I, and I think I was a bit naive. You know, I, I always have to remind people I've only ever worked for myself. And so even when we're talking about women in the workplace or all these things, I sometimes approach them almost like with childlike, I, like this really happens because it's never been my reality, you know? And so the fact that we'd enter business and do things that are unethical or act towards each other, it's not a part of my reality. So it's a huge blind spot. Um, and so ultimately, what did I do? Um, you know, number one, we really look at who we're doing business with, who we're partnering with in a totally different way, you know? And then I realized that it's almost like strengthening your borders, right? And realizing, we have to protect what's most important to our concepts and make sure that we have direct relationship with whomever we might be doing business with. You know, we don't do the pass through thing. That's just, we're beyond that. Um, and that we're going to maintain our standard. And then that was what was really most important. And so it was a very, very costly lesson. I mean, and when I say costly, I mean, $52 million it cost me. <laughs> mm. So it is, the pain alone and what we would have been able to do with that was costly. But on the other side, it really showed me that, you know, our values, I think when you're an entrepreneur, your values, your morals, and the way you run your business, that's most important to you. That's why you're doing what you're doing, right? To, to build a place that reflects who you are as a person. And there are no amount of homes at the beach that can account for doing something that just doesn't really, you know, work within your value set. And so for me, it was, I will never be put in a place again, where I even have to compromise my values to you know, work on a piece of business. And so that, that has been, you know, a big, a big lesson for me. So there's a lot of people listening right now that are uh, agency owners that are marketers, professionals, and they're willing to take on any client that is thrown at them because they just need the money or, you know, whatever it may be. So what 
type of process do you have now that you can kind of talk to us about that might be able to help somebody listening right now to say like, Hey, this is our code of conduct. This is what it is that we, that we want in our new business. And this is the, if it's anything less than that, we're not taking you on. Um, so I have a really simple one. And first of all, I think it is interesting how often we ignore our gut instinct when it is 100% right. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we talk ourselves into things. We say we need the money. Um, I can't tell you how many times I made bad, what someone would consider a bad business decision when I needed the money, but, but also being a researcher and analyzing for other people for a living, I unfortunately see the end at the beginning and see where things are headed and will make a decision that might cost me or would it historically have cost me cash flow, but ultimately it was the right decision. And so my, my no fail plan, this is like a secret that I have not told anyone. Here's how I know um, if it's going to be good. It is the, it's the process of contracting with a potential client that will always tell you who you're dealing with. Hmm. Um, and it's how that happens. Are you respectful with each other? Does it take a ton of time to get done? Is the other person always so busy? Because that, that's the most important thing, right? I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. And we are making promises to each other. And this is what we want to accomplish. And in that period, if you can't communicate and get things done in a way that feels good, and if for any reason in that phase, something feels fishy or not good, it's not going to be a good relationship. I've never once had a contract that was like hellish to get through. And it was a dream to work with the client. Like never once has that happened. You know, I've had companies where the, the contract, you know, even the discussing changes that needed to happen, it was so pleasant. And the experience of working with that company was so pleasant. Mm. Um, and so I very much pay attention and I have many times, you wouldn't believe how many times we've gone to SOW, gone to MSA, and I have stopped the process because there was something that showed up in the execution that was just, just didn't feel right. And in the times when I knew that was happening um, and did it anyway, I, pay, I paid for it at the end. You know, revenue positive, awesome, but paid for it. And, and sometimes as owners, we have to realize we're not actually paying for it. We're putting our staff under that stress. And then if someone quits, we're ultimately paying a bigger price because now we've got to be higher. But, you know, for me, that is foolproof. When I get into an SOW with someone, it's like now the person I'm dealing with is going to show up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great advice. Um, you mentioned that you've only been in business for yourself. Um, and I think I, I remember reading uh, an article that you started all this entrepreneurship journey at 16. So my question to you is being somebody that's been in business and kind of had to quote unquote, figure it out themselves. Have you found, have, have you seen that it's been relatively difficult to make all these mistakes in business? Um, and then find and come to this realization that like, you know, maybe I don't have the, uh, the experience from working in a corporate industry or I don't have the experience from working with a, like a large business. Have you found it difficult not having that quote unquote corporate or uh, job experience that allowed you to become the entrepreneur that you are today? Um, you know, I, I, no, I mean, I haven't because I was lucky to do a program after I graduated from college at Wharton. You know, I've been teaching at Wharton now for five years. And so um, for me, it's really important to constantly be educated and constantly 
doing a course or being amongst my peers and peer learning. But I will say, um, yes, it was in the first 10 to 15 years of my career because people were not doing what I was doing. You know, I'm now, I'm getting to spend the weekend um, at a, a retreat in Utah uh, sponsored by the Young Entrepreneurs Council with 35 other entrepreneurs. That's something, you know, when Scott Garber started that, I remember saying to him, like, I was lonely until you did this. No one understood what I was doing, while I, why I was doing it. And it wasn't a popular thing to do in the 90s, you know, which is when I started in the mid 90s. And so I find now that like having the right peers and getting the right advice is so integral to our success as an agency and just moving forward and knowing that you're making the right decision and making the right move. And so it, it is, but it's not historically something that, that I've had. And so, you know, I've really been more the person who, lives the thing and then goes to college or goes to class and says, oh, that's what I was doing. Oh, now I can have some context around what I've been doing. And so, you know, where most people might go to school and then live it in the real world, I've kind of lived it in the real world and then gone to school and, and really validated and, and created the toolbox of, of what I need there. Yeah, good stuff. Now, um, one of the hardest things to do in business is to achieve your first 100 customers. Mm -hmm. So you being a business owner and also a marketing professional, I'd love to kind of hear your philosophy on how you were able to do it for your, your marketing business, um, but also how you're, you're teaching other people to do the same thing. So what were some ways that you were able to accomplish that of obtaining your first 100 customers? Yeah, so when I started in, you know, 1996, I was a kid doing something that, you know, one of my friends told me the other day, she said, you were a blogger before blogging was a thing. I'm like, actually, that's probably fairly accurate. Um, so I entered a space, which was youth marketing at the time, um, where there were very few competitors. Um, but it also wasn't what it is today. Like um, Anne Choquette, who's a good friend of mine, she used to be editor-in-chief of Seventeen, and she jokes about how we were in like the ghetto of marketing, right? Like everybody's like extra budget went to youth marketing. And then what happens? Young people grow up, they become millennials, the biggest demographic ever in history. And now everybody is like millennial, millennial. And we were very much right, right space, right time, right place. And so I think that, getting that timing right is really important because that meant that we weren't pop, you know, popping up in a space that was, you know, totally filled with people. Like they were looking for us. We had what, what they wanted. And then one of our biggest um, sales drivers was our buzz report, which I still write today. I mean, we have a monthly buzz report. It started out as a newsletter called Tina's top 10 and it was 10 products I really loved. And I, would send it out to people and then that list grew. And, and you know, today we have 6,000 companies on this list where we talk about trends. And so our research has always been our number one sales tool and what's brought people to us. And so that, you know, that's a big driver. Now, what I teach my students, um, there I, I run a program at Wharton called Leadership in the Business World. And I have 160 students every July. They come in, they work on businesses, they pitch in a very Shark Tank style com competition. So I, I have six lectures with them where I teach them every element of writing a business plan, executing on that plan, and then pitching it to potential investors. And one of the first things we do in the first week where we do a feasibility checklist is I ask them to write and list their first five customers. And you know, when you talk about getting to 100, most people can't even talk about the first five, mm. right? And 
I think that's the hardest step is to say, who are the five people I need to do business with? And then once you identify, are, are there differences? Are they different industries? You can in instantly come up with 20 to 30 in each category, but understanding the first five is the most crucial thing any business owner can do. Even if you're looking at um, launching a new service, you know, we've talked about different service offerings. And if, if my team can't say, this is the first five, you know, these are the first five customers we're going to sell to, we're not going to do it, you know? And so that, that part of, you know, think before you get to a hundred or 200, talk about five. I don't care if you're opening a new bake, you know, a new, you know, bakery in Hanfield, who are you targeting? There's a bakery in Hanfield that's been here for years doing quite well. It's a gluten-free bakery, you know? So they clearly were saying, okay, we're targeting Jimmy's mom who's coming here after school. Like they probably drilled down and said, oh, and we're across the street from this really healthy juice bar and there's a pure bar across the street and yoga. Like, so they knew that, that, you know, where they were going. So for them to scale to a hundred, it was very easy. And I think uh, oftentimes it's getting to those five that's most difficult. And then from there, it's just replicating. So uh, you mentioned your report. Um, I also saw, I, maybe it was the most recent report that's on your blog uh, about the 10 things. Um, some of the things that were on there were uh, artificial intelligence, um, social selling, which I think is really important, and eight other things that are on that list. Um, is there anything in particular, maybe if you could just kind of like briefly recap and just say like, hey, people listening out there, focus on these things to have a successful 2018. Yeah, I think what was, um, you know, my team pulls that together every year and it used to be the thing I did. And then, you know, as you grow and get really smart and it's always great to, to really look at, you know, what is the data show and what, you know, where are we moving towards? And what was most fascinating to me was the idea of um, the middle class, right? We continue to hear the middle class is declining. We're moving into two classes, but I was really struck by um, how people really wanted to associate with the idea of middle class, you know, and what that idea really means. And even people who would be considered upper class really want to say, well, we're being very mindful about our money. Like, like that association was really interesting and fascinating to me. And I, I really wonder if it's more about um, an ideal that's so important to people, a thriving middle class. I think it's something that as marketers, we certainly need to be passionate about. I mean, the, the reality is if we are selling things, you know, you want the biggest group of people to be able to consume whatever it is you or your clients are selling, which means, you know, you want a thriving middle class. And so um, that, that, was, that one was just really fascinating to me. I think um, AI and, and the role of artificial intelligence is going to be really important to us as marketers. I think we're already seeing how access to that technology is really um, changing the game for some of our clients. You know, I have clients who really rely on it in the supply chain. You know, the difference it makes for their revenue and just the presence of it is really important. And so, you know, I, I, I love the list in general. I, I'm always kind of looking at, you know, those trends and as we start to bring on new clients. And, and it's great because we're, we're looking at demographics. You know, we have a client we're bringing on now that, you know, hopefully it's like a boomer target. And so it's great to really, you know, boomers spend more money than anyone, but we don't talk to them. And so, you know, I think it's great for us. We look at it as these are 10 guiding principles and things to be aware of as we look at the landscape. And then as we look at each client, we've got to drill really deep into the actual client 
you know, and the actual end user. But these are things you need to be aware of. And, and it's a way to kind of not live in our little marketing vacuum. And, you know, even when you look at spirituality and faith, all of those things are things we cover that are super important when you start to say, okay, how are people ultimately making their buying decisions? And that's really the goal for us at the end of the day with that info is yeah. how, how are people actually making their decisions? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the next segment um, is a segment that I call Explain That Graham. Uh, basically, <laughs> what I did was I went in and I did a deep dive and I stalked a crap out of everything that you've ever posted on Instagram. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. I found some of the, my favorite photos of you uh, and I have questions around each, uh, each, each picture that you posted. So the first question, um, you met in a certain individual that I would say has been the top five people that I would love to meet. So before I show you the picture of who that person is, um, okay. who is one per who is someone else that you would love to meet for your business, and why would you like to meet them? And so here is a picture of you meeting Oprah, uh, and I mean she number one, what does she smell like? Does she smell amazing? Because I'm sure she always looks amazing. Um, but yeah, the real question is who would you like to meet to further your business and why? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, for me, actually, Ann Fudge, um, she's to be the chairman of YNR, um, obviously an African-American woman, top of the advertising game. And so, uh, she's someone I would just love to talk to about, you know, being at the top of one of the best agencies in the world and what that was like. Um, uh, Ms. Winfrey's company, Oprah Winfrey Network, is a client of ours. And so um, we actually got to work with them to build um, a really significant initiative called the Super Soul 100. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and I, you know, I, I think that from a client perspective, um, it, it's both um, one of those things that's it's good and bad because there, there's no company better, you know, when it, when it, when you talk about values and doing everything with intention and, and, you know, the words that she speaks is a through line and every single person you encounter at Oprah Winfrey Network carries those values and interacts with you that way. And it's just the best experience of my life. And the reason I say it's bad is because you want every experience to be that amazing. And you realize that it's once in a lifetime to have a client, you know, like, like that company and so you know they're there and, and they really become friends of mine and I just you know I think so often we talk about how amazing Oprah is and she's just she is just that amazing but I am most struck by the people I get to work with mm. and just how unbelievable they are and really how they show up every day that that takes a lot you know I you know some days we get to phone it in a little bit you know if I'm going to do a research presentation I can like go on autopilot and they have a job where that's never acceptable. You know, every day they're showing up as their full selves, being fully engaged in what they're doing and trying to do the very best they can to help humanity, you know, be the best version of themselves. And so that, that's no small, small job. And I think there are oftentimes where you're fans of someone and you, you know, get to meet them or and maybe it's not the experience you want. And I'm like, I'm beyond super fan for all of the people that work there and the great work they do and just the amazing content that they have you know mm -hmm. some of my favorite shows are on own and they've got even better stuff that's coming and so you know i that that 
photo. I think that was the photo of my parents were like, oh, you know, okay, we get kind of what she does, but it's fine. We have work with them. <laughs> and I had a no photo policy for my team. So it was kind of a joke when I got the photo because we were at a shoot and actually a photographer said, do you want a photo? And I said, no, but I said no, because I'm like, I'm working. Like I, I think as a person who's like being paid, I shouldn't turn around and be like, can I have a photo? And so it was yeah. like an internal joke of like, no, like we, you know, worked on a photo shoot with 60 people who had a photo with Oprah and no one on my team had one. And so when I finally got it, it was really a joke of like, oh, you finally have a photo. <laughs> well, the second one, and I, th this is no secret to anybody who listens to the show or knows anything about me. I am a huge WWE fan. Uh, <laughs> I love WWE. I watch it. Uh, I had tickets to Royal Rumble, uh, but unfortunately, uh, I had to give them up because I had so much work to do and I had to give them to my younger brothers. So they were able to go and not me. This is a photo of you, uh, Stephanie McMahon, another individual who is absolutely incredible. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure some of these people are your team members or friends or you know, maybe executives of theirs. But, um, you know, what is, I mean, you don't have to say if they're a client, but do you like wrestling as much as I do? That was the real question. <laughs> so, um, so Steph and I are fellows in the same class of fellows at the, um, in the Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute. It's so funny, right before I talked to you, she was my last text message. Um, <laughs> nice. So I, this is, I was at a dinner party last fall and um, Pasquale, one of my really good friends, was talking about his Halloween costume and how he was going to dress as a wrestler. And I'm like, that's so funny because Stephanie's a friend of mine. And this is, I've just learned a lot about W. He's like, you know, and then like literally it created this whole conversation with the Royal Rumbles in Philly. I'm like, oh, that's so funny. She just invited us to go to an event whenever we can. And so it just kind of happened that we, I ended up taking my really good friends to the Royal Rumble and they are life tongue fans we sat ringside we got to go backstage and literally they were like this is an absolute dream come true and so yeah. it, was, it was my first rumble but it was great for me to experience it through my friends who were just lifelong fans and I have to tell you like as a marketer and, and sometimes I feel like um I shortchange myself of experiences because I can't just be a fan I'm like there in my marketing function and I'm like as a marketer, WWE is one of the greatest like marketing executions I have ever seen in my entire life. And uh, here's what I mean by it. So of course the Royal Rumble, and it was the first women's Royal Rumble, you've got 30 men who enter the ring and 30 women. Each person who comes in has their own theme music, their own like brand. And I watch these fans know every single person who is coming every single element of their brand and i'm like in what other world like i might like a i might like lululemon but my own pieces of lemon but they all don't have their own brand personality where i'm like you know someone came out and everybody knew to put their phone and make like fireflies and i was just like <laughs> at the amount of knowledge about these people and one brand that these fans had and that every seat was sold and that there was just as much, if not more, anticipation for the women's Royal Rumble. And just as, a, as an experience of how brands interact with fans, um, I think it is one of those things. That I'm sure it's a Harvard case study. If it's not, it should be, because it, it was just fascinating to me as a person.
and to watch, you know, and, and I also think that I had myself probably a stigma or thought going into it about who typically was there and and I saw a lot of diversity and it was just very different than I think what we thought. Um, and, and it was just a really cool event. You know, at the end of the day, I'm like screaming, you know, at first I'm like, I don't really know what this is going to be like. And at the end, I'm just like, yeah, like getting in there like any other crazy person. So cool. you know, definitely a fan. Well, it, it's, it's interesting you say that because I have the same sentiments as you, as you did only I've been a fan of for as long as your friends, um, <laughs> the branding, the marketing execution is phenomenal. The next, um, the next picture uh, is a fun picture of you truffle hunting. Yes. Um, I've seen probably 90% of your uh, Instagram feed has some type of travel related uh, picture. So my question to you is how does travel unlock a certain part of your brain, that creative brain that you have, and how has it helped you become um, a more polished entrepreneur? Um, so first, like traditionally for 22 years, yes, I'm a marketer, I'm a researcher, but really what I do is I help companies understand customers and help them connect better with customers. And so traveling is the single most important thing that I do. And I, I always say the best, like the most important place for me to be as a marketer is an airport. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many trends became trends when I was sitting on a plane watching people walk past. I remember the moment I realized Uggs were a, like a real thing or Toms, right? There's that moment where almost every person getting on the plane is wearing a certain product or doing a certain thing and how people behave when they're traveling because they're not like on, right? They're just like being themselves is really interesting to watch. And so you know, for me, well, first of all, getting to a place and being immersed in different cultures and understanding trends is really important to what I do. Like if I want to talk about fashion and style and retail, Amsterdam is the place I want to go and, you know, the nine streets and see what's really happening there. And, you know, I, I tend to spend a lot of time in Italy because my brother um, um, has been living there for nine years. His wife is Italian and um, yeah, so I, I go to visit him several times a year. So Italy is a place I, I, I'm always looking for something new to do when I go. Um, but wherever I go in the world, it's really, what are people doing? Why are they doing it? What are our shared common values? Where are we different? And where is this culture ahead of American culture in some way? And is there something my client can learn from them? And, you know, when you look at beauty in Europe, for example, um, if you look at what the quality you get in their drugstores for the price, you knew that there would eventually be a shift here towards drugstores doing better. If you look at Target, what they've actually done is become a leader in offering, you know, like a brand like Yes To, Yes To Carrots, Yes To Cucumbers, a 96%, you know, organic brand in Target for less than $20 is not something I would have thought was possible 10 years ago. It's I think for me, just seeing what happens is really important. And also the timing is so different. When I started, it was sometimes I'd see things in other countries that would take two years to get here. And now I see something in six months later, three months later, it's happening. Or we just order from Europe and Amazon makes it possible. And so, um, you know, I really look at what are young people doing? I remember being in Paris, gosh, it was 22, so 2002. 
and being with friends and no one talked on their phones. Everyone was texting and I thought it was the strangest thing I'd ever witnessed. Like not picking up the phone to say I'm downstairs but texting. I'm like, who does that? You know, now we all do it, but, but that was happening in France way before it was happening here. You know, the cost of cell phones are way cheaper in Europe than they are here. And, you know, th so there are a lot of things I get to experience when I go to other places that I'm like, okay, is this going to change or not? You know, fast fashion was a thing in London and, and in the UK pioneered fast fashion, you know, that then broke over here. Get H&M, you know, European brand, you know, Zara, European brand. And so, you know, there, there's so much of our culture that are actually coming from these other places, but yet they come here to really have like the blow up big moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, the final question I have for you is the blind entrepreneur uh, is defined as a person who may be temporarily lost or blind in business and cannot see the obvious. So to those individuals that are stuck in a rut, and they may not be able to uh, get sales or just move their business ahead. What are three pieces of advice that you would give to a fellow entrepreneur? Um, so one I have, I think it's on my website. You can find I have this, this article and you, uh, we do have a worksheet called 12 questions. Um, every business plan must answer. And I think it's really important to go back and look at those questions because sometimes you think you know the answers and you really don't. Um, and just asking yourself those questions, it's really important, like total and target markets. Has there been a market shift that you haven't been focused on? Um, has operation shifted? Um, you know, what, what are the things that mitigate your ability to be successful? Those are constantly changing. Um, and so I would say, go back to basics and ask yourself all of those founding questions again, because I'm sure at some point in those questions, you're gonna realize, oh, my features and benefits have changed drastically or what, what my colleagues are offering in, in the business world. I am way, you know, I, I don't have the right technology, right? If you're running a bake shop, has the point of sale material or point of sale technology changed and you've just not changed with it? Are people doing Postmates and you're not doing Postmates? You know, somewhere in that process, you might find something. Um, back to the question of, who are your customers? Has, has the demographic shifted? I would say in my business, um, my customer set, I, it's the first time in my lifetime that my buyers are younger than me. You know, at 37, I am now older than the people. Per That's never happened to me before. What does the shift need to be? I find that, you know, where when I was growing up talking to the CEO was awesome. Now I find that I have clients who really just want to talk to the director of or the head. They don't really want to talk to me in, in that kind of way. Um, and so I think understanding the dynamics and, and the shifts in your business are, are really important. And then the third thing I would say is it's really important to get out of your own head. And I, I dedicate a lot of my time right now actually two full days of my week. I, my, the best book I've ever read was written by my friend Ari Mizell. Um, and it's basically called Less Doing. And Ari really advocates for shrinking your work week to have creative time. And I, I really have followed his principles to a T. And day work week, I'm headed to two. But what that means is, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I do all my meetings, all my calls. And Monday, Friday are the days where I innovate for my clients and innovate for my business. And that means that, you know, my clients are facing really big challenges. And if they had the time to do it, they wouldn't be hiring an agency to help them. And so as an agency, 
what we're being paid for is our knowledge, our ideas, and the concepts that are going to help them meet their goals. And if you have no time to do that, that might be another reason why you've got a blind spot is that you have not taken a minute to step back and say, what would make this business be better, right? And it's the whole concept of working on your business, not in it. I spent way too much of my life working in it. Yeah. Um, and, and working on it definitely is the better thing for me to do. And so um, that's the third thing I would say. Are you carving out? And if you don't, I, I know there were years in my life where I had to work the weekends. I did not have the time or the luxury. But I'm telling you, if you can only take four hours a week to say, I'm going to be uninterrupted, I'm going to read right? I'm just going to read and be inspired by, you know, I don't care if you're on ink, reading tons of blogs, get, learn something that's not something you already knew. And in some way it will, it will inspire and help you to kind of change the tide in your business. Good stuff. Well, Tina, thank you so much for your time this morning uh, to talk about your experiences and business. It really means a lot. So thank you so much. Um, the next 30 seconds is all yours to promote yourself. Tell everybody what you have going on, how they can learn more about you, uh, become a part of your journey, or potentially find out about becoming a customer of yours. Absolutely. Um, so for, for the agency side, um, you can visit buzzmg.com. And then for me personally, um, you can visit tinawells.com. Very good. Good stuff. Well, to those of you that are still watching and listening, thank you guys for always liking, commenting, and subscribing. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube and head over to theblindentrepreneur.com for more interviews. Being blind in business is temporary, and I hope after listening to the wisdom of Tina today, you are now able to see more clearly. Go out there and execute your vision. Have a great rest of your day.